0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Amplify. I'm your host, Sam Ishu. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking to all three authors of the July Pediatric Emergency Medicine Practice article on human trafficking of children and adolescents. It's an intense but so clinically relevant conversation that just is packed full of important information. Before we get to that interview, I want to remind you that this month, you can get a free for the love of emergency medicine t-shirt with every purchase throughout the entire month of September at ebmedicine.net. If you're a subscriber to Pediatric Emergency Medicine Practice, check out this full issue, um, Human Trafficking of Children and Adolescents and earn 4 CME Credits. And if you're a subscriber to our adult-focused journal, Emergency Medicine Practice, pay an additional $50 more and you will receive access to the pediatric publication, or our new evidence-based urgent care publication. So look for that special bundle deal at ebmedicine.net. Also, there are two books you should be aware of. First is the trauma book. That's 16 hours of trauma CME, including topics like pneumothorax, wounds, Rib Fractures and Cervical Spine Injuries, and the new stroke book, which is eight hours of stroke CME and includes chapters on ischemic stroke treatment and blunt cerebrovascular injury. Both of those books are available to you online and especially important for everyone practicing in a trauma or stroke center to earn the required trauma and stroke specific CME hours. And now, without any further ado, let's get to this interview.
1: I'm Dr. Lila Bakrak. I'm based at UCSF Benyat Children's Hospital, Oakland, in the Department of Pediatrics. I am a health sciences clinical professor and I lead our human trafficking intervention and
2: prevention program. Hi, I'm Larissa Truchel. I am a pediatric emergency medicine physician at Duke University Hospital and an assistant professor in pediatrics.
3: Hi, I am Dr. McKinney Chisholm-Straker. I am also an emergency medicine physician and associate professor of emergency medicine in the Mount Sinai health system. I work clinically at a community hospital and a large public hospital in Queens, and I've been doing anti-trafficking and trafficking response work for over 17 years.
0: Wonderful. Thank you, all three of you, for being on the podcast today to discuss your article that the three of you authored in July for Pediatric Emergency Medicine Practice on human trafficking of children and adolescents. Today, I'd like to just run through that topic so that we can all understand it better and hopefully apply it to our own practices. Perhaps we can start with what trafficking specifically refers to and what that word encompasses.
2: Great, thanks for having us, Sam. So I'll start off with some definitions. Labor trafficking is defined as the recruitment, harboring, transportation, provision, or obtaining of a person for labor or services through the use of force, fraud, or coercion for the purposes of subjection to involuntary servitude, debt bondage, or slavery. And there's various industries, both legal and illegal, in which children may be trafficked. And this can include agriculture, factory or restaurant services, domestic work. That's a lot of legalese, but that's the official definition. Sex trafficking is defined as the recruitment, harboring, transportation, provision, obtaining, or soliciting of a person for the purposes of a commercial sex act, in which the commercial sex act is induced by force, fraud, or coercion, in which The person induced to perform such an act has not attained 18 years of age. So that's the definition for child sex trafficking. Um, But it's important to note that force, fraud, and coercion are not required for minors because we know that kids can't consent to these acts. And that definition, child sex trafficking, commercial sexual exploitation of children, or CSEC you may hear it referred to as, is designed to reflect those nuances. And the fact that a person can be trafficked without actually being transported anywhere, which is a common myth around trafficking. And so that might look like children being exploited over the internet with sexual photos or videos, solicitation, survival sex, so exchange of sex for non-monetary things. So for example, a child who has run away from home or is experiencing homelessness could be exchanging sex for housing, and that still meets the definition of trafficking even if it is perceived as consensual to the young person if they're under the age of 18 years.
3: I think it's an important nuance that I think clinicians get confused about. That legalese is totally like the simplest way that you can say it. It's actually much longer like the law itself. But if a minor is in an industry where they are exchanging sex, sex acts, or things that, you know, child abuse imagery, even if they're not being touched, for example, formerly known as child pornography— that is considered sex trafficking, even if they haven't been defrauded, forced, or coerced into it, because under the law, at, presently, federally, we have deemed that children cannot consent to sex. That nuance does not exist for labor trafficking. So if you are 15 or 9, or you're 17 years old in 364 days, and it is a labor exploitation situation, there has to be force, fraud or coercion involved, presently, mm-hmm. under federal law. That's just to be like extremely clear that there is a hierarchy of how the federal government has decided what children can and cannot consent to and that's a whole another podcast on socio-political historical reasons for why those things exist and hopefully they won't that that nuance won't be separated forever that maybe things will change but just to bear that in mind at the federal level i can't speak for every state every state does have their own definitions
0: wow And how often are we seeing children in the emergency department who are victims of trafficking? Do we have data on that? Is there good information on that?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. It's definitely something that's hard to obtain data on, as you can imagine, due to the criminal nature and the clandestine nature that getting reliable statistics is quite challenging. The International Labor Office in 2016 estimated 40.3 million people impacted by trafficking worldwide. So that includes forced labor or sexual exploitation, state-imposed forced labor and forced marriage. And the data on children is a little bit harder. You'll sometimes hear a statistic about 200 to 325,000 annually, but that's not a terribly reliable statistic. We have some numbers about children presenting in emergency departments, so there was a study that said in a group of high-risk chief complaints in an urban ED, the prevalence of child sex trafficking was about 12.3%. For labor trafficking, the data is quite scant. I don't think we have any estimates at all that are reliable, but it's important for the listener to realize that even though some of our data doesn't give us the, great, the best estimates, that Children are presenting to emergency departments with this chief complaint. There was a statistic that 83% of survivors of sexual exploitation were cared for in pediatric hospitals within one year of exploitation. So even though our data and our estimates aren't great, it's really important for emergency department providers to be prepared to recognize and identify trafficking.
0: Mm, that is Terrible. I mean, oftentimes data is undercounting the true incidence of something and none of those numbers you just mentioned are small. So that's still quite terrible. Is trafficking often something that is self-reported or is that uncommon in the ED or in any setting for that matter?
2: Yeah. As you said, underreporting is a huge problem and Getting or having a patient or a child disclose an experience of trafficking is actually quite rare, Uh, and there's a lot of reasons behind that. Some of that has to do with stigma and shame, hopelessness, fear of retaliation, or particularly consequences. Sometimes there's a lack of awareness of their exploitation themselves, and the language that is used by providers may not feel like the experience that they're having. And then there's also trauma bonds that can make a child or an adult or an adolescent feel like they're not able to disclose because of a loyalty to their abuser as well. Mm -hmm. And as a reminder, when patients are presented to the emergency department, they could be experiencing trafficking and present with a number of chief complaints, either related or not related to a trafficking experience. So a patient in DKA who has not had access to insulin or someone who is coming with the chief complaint of being exploited are two very different presentations, but ultimately may result in discovering that this patient is experiencing trafficking. Mm.
0: And are there specific populations that are at higher risk for being trafficked?
2: Yeah. So we know that there's multiple risk factors. Again, this data is a little bit complicated because it's hard for us to understand if the risk factor is causing the outcome or uh, sort of which came first, the chicken or the egg through this question Mm -hmm. of causality that often comes up in research. We know that children who have experienced homelessness, physical abuse, sexual abuse, neglect, involvement with foster care, children who've witnessed violence or have had interactions with the law at a young age, children with learning disabilities or children on an IEP, children who have been arrested or experienced suicidality or other mental health concerns or higher risk. And there's sort of these broader structural factors as well. So poverty, racism, homophobia, transphobia, sexism. And this leads to an inequitable distribution of opportunities for well-being and ultimately higher risk for outcomes and exploitation. We also know that Minors and disproportionately minors of color and minors of gender and sexualities, including LGBTQ populations, as well as non-binary or non-conforming gender identities may also be at higher risk.
0: And when we talk about trafficking, especially of minors, do we know or have a good understanding what the long-term effects of trafficking are on children as they grow into adulthood?
2: Yeah. So as you can imagine, there are some really devastating health consequences that survivors experience. And we have some data about that in children. They have higher rates of depression, PTSD, anxiety, and suicide attempts. We know that substance use disorders also are higher in survivors, which could be a direct effect of their abuser Taking advantage of them and using illicit substances to promote their participation in these activities. And again, there's sort of this chicken or egg phenomenon of being also probably higher risk if you have a substance use disorder. Sexually transmitted infections, unintended pregnancies, chronic pelvic pain are just sort of a few of the consequences you could imagine. Labor trafficking also has some similar consequences and you could think about depending on the labor they're being asked to do some of the different effects. So physical assaults are quite common, work related injuries, thinking about trauma to the face and someone, for example, that is working construction and may not have appropriate eyewear, untreated medical conditions, if they're living in unsafe sleeping or living conditions without support or access to resources, malnutrition, exhaustion. Just to name a few of those it's a long list, but And there's a variety of different consequences. And again, these can be related to their trafficking experience or health problems that they have. They're underdiagnosed or undertreated.
0: You know, in the emergency department, we tend to be pretty focused on the differential diagnosis for presentations. And when it comes to that kind of framework for something like trafficking, is there really a differential diagnosis for something like trafficking? and, And what kinds of things should we also be considering in that kind of scenario?
1: Yeah. So as Larissa was mentioning, it is very rare for somebody to present to the ED saying, I'm being trafficked. So when we talk about a differential diagnosis, there will be a differential for their medical chief concern. But whenever there is something going on psychosocially, we have to pause and think, you know, is this just intimate partner violence? Not to minimize that as an issue, or is it a presentation of human trafficking? So some of the overlapping associated issues that you could frame as a differential diagnosis for human trafficking include domestic violence, any kind of abuse, emotional abuse, physical abuse. There's been some studies showing that childhood sexual abuse is particularly predictive of being vulnerable to future sexual exploitation and CSEC. And in terms of labor exploitation and labor trafficking, the nuance between labor exploitation is when there's been violations of minimum wage or overtime pay requirements, which is one end of the spectrum, but that can be a slippery slope towards labor trafficking that was defined previously. All kinds of sexual assault should trigger the question, is this patient potentially being trafficked? And then sometimes... Our society is quick to label or judge somebody. So if somebody comes in as a prostitute or sex worker, you know, if they're a child, they cannot consent to commercial sex. So that by definition would be trafficking. If they're an adult, hopefully they are empowered and keeping their own resources from their sex work. But to keep in mind that that's not always the case and they could be an adult who's being trafficked, who people are dismissing as a prostitute or somehow judging or looking down upon.
0: There's a good table in the issue itself, table two, which lists many things that are in the differential diagnosis for human trafficking. But these are things that that don't necessarily seem like they would be mutually exclusive. I assume you could have more than one of these things, like you could be experiencing emotional abuse and physical abuse and also be a victim of intimate partner violence and perhaps human trafficking. Is it common that people are involved in many of these or victims of many of these all simultaneously?
1: Absolutely. You could picture a Venn diagram where many of these things go on for trafficked individuals. Sometimes they go on for people who are not being trafficked and other things that could be on the differential when somebody presents and they're suicidal. Have to wonder, you know, is this just pure mental illness or is there something going on. I remember a poignant case where I was reviewing a child's chart. They'd been admitted for a 5150, were on a psychiatric hold, and the trainee had documented they were going on and on about a quota that they were being held to that was causing them to want to jump off a bridge. And it was charted as if it was sort of semi-psychotic ramblings when it turns out that was that child's reality. That was what was going on for them. Mm -hmm. Similarly, substance use issues, exploiters find it easier to manipulate an individual who is addicted to a substance. And so sometimes there can be forms of coercion that involve substance use. So if the patient is presenting with a complication of substances, that can also be on our differential or just make sure that there's not a trafficking situation.
0: Good. If we're working in the emergency department and we have patients who are being brought to the hospital by our EMS or pre-hospital staff, are there things that they can add or pick up on from history or examination in the pre-hospital setting that might aid us in helping the patient who is a victim of human trafficking?
1: Absolutely. And to have the most robust anti-trafficking response possible, it's definitely a multidisciplinary sport. So sometimes in the field, EMS may notice dynamics or what's been going on and may have important information that they've observed. Sometimes it can be challenging to have one-on-one time with somebody who's impacted by trafficking and oftentimes during an ambulance ride, EMS may have some one-on-one time with a patient to either check in about safety or to hand off some safety cars or give the patient a heads up about some of the resources that are electronic. Similarly, registration staff may pick up on a patient who doesn't have ID or doesn't know their address or has um, somebody else holding all of their documents or information that the average older teen or adult would have. If it's a child, then obviously they're used to having some help. And even environmental services may see interactions between a patient and an exploiter and have a sense that this is not a healthy dynamic. So having a mechanism for anybody on the team to check in with, whether it be the charge nurse or head of social work, to mobilize some extra support for a patient, the more kind of eyes and ears and support, the better.
0: You know, it's interesting. Many of the things that you just mentioned could be viewed as just things that frustrate people about their job. I'm talking to a patient who doesn't know their address and can't give me a phone number and doesn't have an ID and I need to move on to 20 or 30 other patients. And I'm super frustrated that you can't just provide me with the information I need. But I think that kind of underscores the need to train and appropriately educate all members of the clinical staff and even the non-clinical staff, because some of these things can be important pieces of information to be brought forward that might bring to light a victim of human trafficking in an otherwise unremarkable scenario that someone like registration might just dismiss as, oh, just another frustrating encounter with a patient. So those are some great examples. When staff who are members of EMS or pre-hospital care or registration have concerns, do you find that they are more willing to bring that information to someone like a charge nurse or when you're working shift, do you often have people bring that information directly to you as the physician caring for the patient or practically how does that work?
1: Ideally, each institution would have a formal human trafficking response protocol Mm -hmm. and it would be spelled out who to check in with in my setting. Yeah, they would touch base with me, they would touch base with our social worker and just knowing or making sure everybody knows that their observations are helpful and important and valid and that it can make a critical difference.
0: Good. Yeah, that's very helpful. And when we then enter the room as physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs, and we're going to examine the patient, are there specific common complaints or common presentations that might alert us that someone is a victim of human trafficking?
3: Well, as sort of has been discussed, people can present with any number of things. So at this point we don't have the data to say, yes, you should have a higher suspicion if someone comes in with abdominal pain, right? I think that once you put labor and or sex trafficking on the differential in that bigger list of interpersonal violence, right? When we think about child maltreatment, we think about IPV and and domestic violence. If you add trafficking to that differential, I think clinicians are less likely to miss it if they are being, if they're taking care of people who are, clearly have experienced trauma, for example, physical trauma, right? Like someone comes in with, I don't know, a broken nose, you're going to ask how it happened, right? <laughs> um, you're going to notice when someone comes in with pneumonia, you get a chest x-ray and you see old rib fractures, a conversation ensues. We are already sort of primed for the recognition of physical trauma, especially when mechanisms don't match what we're seeing. Right, so we're sort of primed for that. It's more, it's, I think it's even more important for us to put on our differential when we have medical complaints or psychiatric complaints because it's not on our differential. Right, we're missing it for IPV for sure. We're missing mm-hmm. it for domestic violence for sure. We're obviously missing it for child maltreatment as well. Just because someone comes with when with an asthma exacerbation, it's just not on your differential. Right, your question is why is the asthma gotten worse? But if we actually ask that question. Right? and ask that question of why today, why not yesterday or tomorrow, what was different about today, and we take the time to, it is a little bit of time, but it's not a ton of time, to ask the the why question that is terrifyingly open-ended, I know. Um, it allows space for a conversation, and I think that's that's what's most helpful. The data that we do have, mostly for adults to be honest, that is comprehensive and looks at labor and sex trafficking, people come in with all kinds of complaints, and so I have a higher suspicion, like everyone else, for interpersonal violence when there's trauma because it's just it's embedded in my DNA at this point. Based on training, I have to remind myself when I'm when they're here for like my ear hurts.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. When it comes to the examination portion of this encounter, then there was a a good bit of space dedicated in the article about taking the minor into a private setting, having conversations away from adults that might accompany them, and is that something that has become kind of routine practice for you? And how do you accomplish that when a minor arrives with a guardian or a parent or an adult that uh, is with
3: them? Yeah, that's a really common and important question because I think it really harkens to the fact that we're not, as clinicians, separating visitors from patients as standard practice. If it was our standard practice, we wouldn't have this question, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And it's important for us when thinking about adolescence and youth in general to remember that every socially acceptable relationship is not always a safe or healthy one or safe or healthy for them to share what they're particularly showing up for, right? So I'm not going to ask a 16-year-old about their sex life in front of their mom because I wouldn't want someone to do a debt to me. Like, that's weird, right? Like, it's just socially you wouldn't do it, right? So it's it's sort of remembering that, first of all, what your state laws are, right? In New York State, where I practice, if a minor is of maturity, which thankfully is up to me as the clinician to decide, then they can access sexual, reproductive, and mental health without a legal guardian's permission. Of course, if someone needs life or limb-threatening, like emergency care, I also don't need to wait to be like, I'm sorry, can I give the albuterol? Yes, I can. I know that I can (laughs) just do that. And so sort of applying that rule a little bit further, age of maturity, can I talk to this person and ask them questions in an age-appropriate way where they would be able to offer me information? And so my practice, generally speaking, is to get a history with whomever is there about why everyone thinks they're there, and then I have the loved one step out as my standard practice, and I make it clear that this is not like, I just say, I don't want to like go and big, deep, whatever. Like I'm not blaming you for anything. I just say, okay, thank you so much. I'm going to have you step over here for the exam and I'll come back and get you. So I make it really clear that they're going to be involved again. I'm going to re-loop them in. And then I talk to the patient again while I'm doing the exam also, cause it's just more time efficient. Um, but it's, it's about making it normal so that no one thinks anything abnormal or weird is being, is happening because at the end of the day, if this person, if this patient is going back with that person, I don't need to create more friction. It's actually going to create a more unsafe circumstance for my patient.
0: And then there's discussion also in the article about setting ground rules with the patient. So can you define for me what exactly do we mean by setting ground rules with the patient and what kind of things do you tell them in advance? How how do you handle that conversation?
3: Sure. Of course, everything is individualized as it is in EM, right? Like we have algorithms, but we also know every patient situation is slightly different. I think that the more you practice, the more comfortable you get. And so part of that practice is, frankly, practicing it when it doesn't matter. Like with your colleagues, it's weird. Like it's socially weird to be like, hey, can I just practice saying this to you? Um, but it's very much what we did in med school, which is learning to take a sexual a reproductive history, right? And practicing saying penis and vagina so that it is now like saying water bottle, right? Mm. And, and doing that. And so paraphrasing somewhere along these lines is something of what I say, which is if they come in alone and their chief complaint, I think is benign, we just talk right? Like, it just, what brings you in today? and like, oh, I have a sore throat. And you're like, oh, okay, let me look. And you're like, oh, it's terrible. You have strap. Like, it's all going to be fine. Um, and we it doesn't turn into a ground rules conversation. If I think I'm about to hear something or a chief complaint makes me think I'm going to hear something, then I introduce myself. I say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm a part of the team that's going to be taking care of you. I just want to let you know, you probably already know that I'm a mandated reporter, which means that if I think that someone is hurting you, I have to let someone else know. That's just the, a part of the rules so that we can take the best care of you that we can otherwise anything that you tell me is confidential let me know shoot and then they talk if they've come in with um a a visitor they're not always the legal guardian right um if they come in with a visitor and we do the step away thing right now it's just us before i get to the exam i say i just want to be clear that whatever we're talking about in this room It's not my job to report back to that person who's with you. But of course, you know, if you tell me something like someone's hurting you or you wanna hurt yourself, I have to tell someone else so that, you know, A, I can keep my job. And I make it really clear with them, this is about you and me, right? (laughs) Like This is because I can't come fix everything. And because you may need more help than I can give. And because if they're old enough and we've established a rapport, it's like, listen, I don't know you well enough to lose my job. Like, I, I need to keep this going for me. And so it sort of normalizes it for them. Mm-hmm.
0: That's good. And the practice, I think, is probably going to be key there. You, know, you really do have to work on that dialogue ahead of time to make it sound more comfortable and not yeah, like you're, you're uncomfortable as well with that scenario. Exactly. There was some reference to technology and how to handle it when the person you're trying to speak to is on a phone or has a phone that's got a video conference going at the same time that you're interviewing them. How do you handle those scenarios?
3: Yeah, so the I think the first big key is noticing that it's happening. Sometimes people are actually on purpose recording and, and secretively, and so you may not notice. So in my head, I do the thing that my mother raised me to do, which is always assume you're being recorded. It is, of course, illegal, right, to record in a healthcare setting space. But even when you think you're by yourself, you act like somebody's watching, this way you'll always do the right thing. That's how I was raised. Um, but then there's... The, you can tell that you're there being that you're being recorded. And then there's two ways that it's going on. One way is that it's a secret and one way is that it's totally obvious. And it maybe you're not being recorded. Maybe they're just FaceTiming and it's not recording, whatever. If it's obvious, then I say, hey, is there someone else on that line that you want to be have a part of this conversation? And start it there, like let them know that I know, that I can tell. Um, And honestly, sometimes the person on the line is actually helpful. Like they're like, oh, yes, when they were six, they were hospitalized for, and it's like actually useful information that I want. Um, And so I find that helpful. But at some point, I do say, okay, great, listen, we're gonna call you back. I just need to do the exam and I need all of us to have all of use of our all of our limbs so we'll call you back again it's a normalizing thing you make you use a benign reason that's completely logical for why it needs to go off the recording or the the video interaction. If it is a secret, like the patient doesn't know that you know, I frankly just don't have the bandwidth emotionally to pretend that I don't know. So I just say, um, hey, I see that you have your phone with you. Listen, can you do me a solid? In order for me to take the best care of you, I need to have you fully engaged. Is there someone that you want us to call back? And just let it, and let them, like, take it from there, right? Like, if the answer is yes, because that person has already told them that they need to be involved in every single way, which is potentially concerning, Can I say, okay, cool, we can do that. Let's call them back. And then I make sure that I have put their phone on a counter so I can tell that it's off, yeah. right? Um, so it, it, mostly it's about normalizing. And I think that people forget that kids can take a lot more honesty than we give them credit for. and. Kids that are in experiences of interpersonal violence are honestly more savvy than and have survived more than I think we give them credit for it as well. So they they know what a mandated reporter is, many of them. Um, they know what is mandated reporting. They know that they're not supposed to be recording. Yeah, like they know a lot of this stuff. So it's not like we're giving them big news, yeah. if I'm honest.
0: <laughs> no, that's good. That's very good. And then when it comes to the history portion of it, so when you're interviewing the patient, what kinds of things are we asking? There was a discussion of that HEADS-ED screening. When are you using that tool? Is it just when you have suspicion? Is it based on their presentation? Is it all things, anytime you think of it? How do you handle that?
2: Yeah, I think it's important to start with the chief complaint, right? So they come in and their complaint is related to ear pain. um, Performing... Your history as usual, making sure you understand what caused that, asking questions that are open-ended to allow for some space for people to potentially disclose and focusing on their medical complaint, I think it should always be the first priority. Every patient should have a social history obtained. The heds is a really helpful tool that sort of just walks through different aspects of someone's life that you can inquire about. And like most things, it's a helpful tool. It's helpful as you're starting. It's helpful when you're educating learners as well. But really establishing rapport, creating an environment of respect. And some of these different ways of doing that have been discussed already, but really creating privacy and then creating a space where questions are tailored to. So for example, if you have a patient who lives in a care setting like or lives in a in foster care and you say, how's life at home? Or tell me about your family, and maybe they haven't seen their parent for a few years. So using language that's inclusive and language that allows for trust and respect can be helpful. The HEADS tool, so it basically starts with kind of least sensitive and goes towards more sensitive lines of questioning. So starting with questions about where they live or who lives with them their education and employment, what activities do they, what are their relationships like with their friends, drugs and alcohol, suicidality, sexuality, emotions. You can start by saying something like, how have you been feeling lately? As opposed to, do you have any thoughts upon yourself or others? Which I think sometimes in a fast-paced ED setting is our go-to. Do you feel Mm. safe at home? Um, That may not be the kind of language that elicits the response that you're hoping for, which is, a very vulnerable disclosure. So like any other type of human relationship, there's some level of respect and trust that has to be established to get there, right? And then the PAIR tool is one other tool that we referenced in the article. And that stands for PAIR, provide privacy, educate, ask, respect, and respond. And I think one of the ways that I've been taught to talk about this, again, with this type of normalizing language that McKinney was referencing, is saying something like, A lot of patients that I take care of who are experiencing homelessness have been taken advantage of or exploited. Is that something that's ever happened to you? Or some of my patients who have run away from home have found themselves in relationships that sometimes feel like they're being taken advantage of or unfair. Is that something you've experienced? And sometimes they may not be ready to tell you about that. And it may take many conversations before they feel comfortable to disclose that. If they say, no, that's not happening to me or no, I've never experienced that. But I know some people who have, you could always say something like, here's the number to the National Human Trafficking Hotline, or here's a number you can text or call if you ever find that you are experiencing something like that. And that sort of gives you as an op- an opportunity to give them a resource to help them. And it gives them the opportunity to know what to do if they do find themselves in a position where they're willing to disclose. Or maybe they haven't experienced trafficking yet, but that's something that they're very at risk for or vulnerable for and could come up in their future. And it feels like not enough, but sometimes just that first step of having a number to call can, mm. can actually be really helpful.
0: So I could see, knowing my own partners, I could see this conversation going one of two ways. One of my partners sitting down with a checklist, kind of clipboard, going down the Heads ED tool. Do you, do you, do you, no, 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 no. Got it, next, you know. Or I could see one of my more senior partners who is getting closer to retirement and they're sewing up a laceration, just casually having a conversation with the patient and asking these same questions, but in a more conversational manner. Does it matter how we have that conversation or as long as that information is coming across, are you documenting it, for example, in your chart as well? I sat down and I went through this checklist and all these questions were no, or is the point really just to to get this information from the patient and see if you can provide them with the help they might need And then it doesn't really matter if you're using a clipboard while you're getting the information.
2: (laughs) Definitely don't need a clipboard. I think that it raises an important point of are you doing this for your purposes, right? Your documentation, you're checking a box versus is this really an open inquiry that is trying to create a safe space for a patient to disclose something potentially very challenging, traumatic, Mm -hmm. and horrible. And I think if you approach Patients like check boxes, they know that, they feel that, and it doesn't create that same environment. There is a pediatric screening tool, which we can talk about later, and it has been validated and has six questions and then some follow-up questions. And there's, I think there's debate in the community about whether screening tools are helpful or whether these sort of open-ended conversation is a, a more helpful way to elicit these histories the benefit of a screening tool is that it sort of standardizes care. Everybody's getting asked the same questions. Maybe you would be able to elicit. Maybe people feel more comfortable answering something on an iPad than talking to a person, depending on your personality style. And then advocates of not using screening tools and being sort of more open-ended in their questioning suggest that establishing that respect and that rapport will more likely lead you to a conversation that helps you understand what your patient is actually experiencing. And mm-hmm. obviously that conversation needs to happen either way, whether or not you're using a screening tool. But those are two sides of that argument. And also is a good opportunity to raise involving social work as a multidisciplinary approach mm-hmm. if you have social work available. So particularly if you're trying to obtain a history, sometimes making someone repeat a history multiple times, if you know you're going to involve social work and this is already kind of in the differential Having a social worker involved, even in the history taking, can be really helpful, and they have specialized training to be able to ask some of these questions more so than we do. So that was just one other thing that I wanted to
0: bring up. Oh, that's a really good suggestion. When it comes to the physical examination, so are there findings that might lead you to be more suspicious that someone's a victim of human trafficking when you're proceeding through your exam? And, and then as a follow-up question to that, is it okay to maybe bring that up and ask people about those kinds of things?
2: Yeah, so it's probably a good time to bring up trauma-informed care, which should be a universal precaution. We know that trauma is extremely prevalent and that um, in the same way, rather than choosing which patients you are going to take a trauma-informed care approach, that that should just be your standard practice, which is basically taking care of patients in a way that seeks to one, not re-traumatize them during their interactions with healthcare systems. So you can think about that in your physical exam. If someone's experienced sexual assault or sexual exploitation, that the way that you approach them and touch them is really important. So making sure you're asking for permission before you put your hands on a child or an adolescent, explaining what you're doing as you're doing the physical exam. So is it okay if I Touch your abdomen so that I can make sure you don't have any abdominal tenderness? Or would you open your mouth so that I can look for whatever it is that you're looking for? So that's important in the way that you approach your physical exam. And then you're looking for things related to their chief complaint, but We also know that some of the physical findings that we have seen in children who have experienced trafficking include things like poor dentition, evidence of malnutrition, which can present as being underweight or overweight, having tattoos, so there's some branding that sometimes abusers or traffickers force upon the people that they're exploiting. Sometimes those have to do with ownership or money, things like scarring or burn, similar to what we look for with maltreatment. So looking at injuries that may be at different stages of healing. For labor trafficking, you can think about injuries related to their work. So if they have an unsafe workplace, different repetitive accidental injuries. So a lot of facial trauma or broken bones that just seem out of proportion of what you would expect. And when you see something like that, as you mentioned, so inquiring in a non-judgmental manager. So you could say, um, "Can you tell me about this tattoo?" Not, "Oh, this tattoo is strange or interesting. Why do you have this?" <laughs> and that might create an environment where people feel safe to kind of tell you what's been going on. And then just thinking about the physical exam, and you know, it always depends on the chief complaint. But if you're um, doing a, a GU exam, for example. Again, using that trauma-informed approach, thinking about things like STIs and looking for evidence of vaginal discharge or CMT tenderness, cervical motion tenderness, if you're concerned about PID, those are sort of areas of my exam that I focus on. And then similar to maltreatment exam, looking at Other signs of common abuse, so areas that we know around the ears, looking for frenulum tears in the mouth, bruising in areas that you wouldn't expect people to have bruising like on the abdomen or in the GU area, can all raise your concern for abuse or for exploitation.
0: And then if you do find some alarming findings when it comes to actually documenting those, there was a nice little description in the article about the importance of doing that correctly, but then appropriately? Tell me more about that.
1: So when it comes to documentation, it's important to follow best practices, both for history and the psychosocial screen in the context that, especially in this day and age, or the Cures Act and open notes, and also historically that parents and legal guardians can access charts. Sensitive information that's gathered that we've told the patient is confidential should be clearly marked Confidential. Many electronic health record systems allow you to mark a note as sensitive. So if it's something that you told the patient that their parent or legal guardian may not see, just to make sure it is marked sensitive. That there's label confidential over it, and also to have explained the ground rules of confidentiality. In my setting of practice, which is a team clinic and primary care outpatient setting. We review ground rules of confidentiality with all patients before doing the psychosocial screen. And um, earlier we talked about a possible strep throat. It could be gonococcal, it could be HIV. So you never know what something is gonna be. So always important to review ground rules of confidentiality and then to chart it in a sensitive part of the note. When it comes to physical exam findings and also keeping the lens that every now and then Our medical record will end up being reviewed by a court of law, making sure that things are documented accurately, getting the patient's permission to put photos of injuries or relevant physical findings into the note. And later we can talk a little bit about ways to document stuff in the medical note, or there are at times other systems to serve traffic patients that are more behind the scenes tools where you can document usually more kind of care coordination discussions. And that can also be helpful for patients' optimal care in terms of controlling who sees which information. And then also at times in terms of staff safety, there's been a few case reports of traffickers getting a hold of medical records and then targeting folks that got child welfare and or law enforcement involved for pediatric patients. So many different angles to the documentation, but the bottom line is just to do it accurately. If you're going to take photos, doing it with the patient's consent and involvement.
0: And then when it comes to diagnostic studies, you know, we're in an emergency department, we like to order pictures and we like to order tests, anything helpful in that realm for these kinds of scenarios, or is it just purely based on whatever it is the, the chief complaint or the exam might guide you to?
1: Yeah, I think largely based on chief complaint, especially when it comes to imaging studies, you know, if usually we wouldn't do any imaging just based on suspected trafficking. Makini already brought up, if you find incidental fractures at healing stages, then you have to worry about maltreatment and or trafficking. Every now and then an exploiter will coach a pediatric patient to lie about their age because the consequences legally for the exploiter are more severe if they're trafficking a child than an adult. Mm. So if the patient's already having a radiographic study, sometimes the bone age can be assessed, but I wouldn't subject a patient to radiation just because you don't know how old they are.
0: Good. When it comes to laboratory testing and screening for sexually transmitted infections or those kinds of infections, how do you handle that in these scenarios?
1: Yeah, patients who have experienced both labor and sex trafficking can be at high risk of sexual health complications. So if there is concern for trafficking or if they report there's a history of sexual assault, making sure that we get an HIV test, a syphilis test, hepatitis B, hepatitis C. And then when screening for things like gonorrhea and chlamydia, the molecular-based nucleic acid amplification testing is the most sensitive and specific rather than cultures, et cetera. And patients can actually typically collect their own swabs. And it's important to offer testing at all sites of sexual activity. So oropharynx, urogenital and rectum, if relevant. If a patient is currently menstruating, then doing urine-based testing because the swabs can't be processed by the lab if the patient is on their period trichomonas is also one that can be tested for. There's now nucleic acid amplification testing for that. And even though trick in and of itself is kind of considered harmless, it can increase uh, HIV transmission. And the molecular testing is much more sensitive and specific than wet mount. I know it's kind of fun to see trichomonas on a microscope slide, but it is more accurate to do it through the lab. And then finally, if the patient has lesions suggestive of a herpes simplex virus outbreak, then getting molecular HSV testing, and in this day and age of monkeypox to keep that on the differential if there is a rash. We just had our first patient presenting with what people initially thought was folliculitis, but it turns out they had
0: monkeypox. Wow. Many of the states that we practice in, in fact, all the states have some kind of law regarding mandatory reporting How do we broach this subject with patients? And once we do, is there anything to suggest that this might actually dissuade a patient from disclosing information?
1: Yes, it's very, very important to both know the minor consent laws for where you're practicing as well as mandated reporting laws, both for pediatric patients and adults. Sometimes there can be state laws related to reporting injuries that seem to have occurred in a domestic violence situation. And so in California, where I practice, if the patient is a minor and there's concern for exploitation, currently that would go through child welfare. When I first started practicing prior to SB 1322, kids that were being sexually exploited were handled through law enforcement and juvenile justice system. And so there was times when it would come on my radar that a patient was trafficked based on them having received a lot of vaccines while they were incarcerated in the juvenile justice system. But fortunately, now there's more of a trauma-informed approach of offering support through child welfare rather than through criminalizing the history of Mm. exploitation of children. So again, it varies quite a bit, state by state, and making sure that you know the latest protocols. Sometimes there can be Time for systems to change, and so there's a period of time between, like 2017 and 2019, when sometimes you would call in about a patient to child welfare, and the person answering the phone wasn't aware of the shift and would tell you to call the police, which was not the approach that was recommended. Mm-hmm. And so, good to to be on top of your local laws.
0: And then, if if you're bringing that up in a conversation with the patient, I mean. I- i would assume you have to disclose this information anyway. And as McKinney said, maybe you make it part of your normal routine so that it's not an awkward disclosure. It's just a, hey, this is what I do. This is my job. Do we know if that dissuades patients from reporting?
1: Yes. And that is one of the downsides and the fact that we still don't have a perfect way to offer support. But I think on top of having mentioned to the patient during disclosing the ground rules of confidentiality that under certain situations, if there's a safety issue that you would need to get additional help. Making sure the patient is part of the report if it needs to be made and letting them know that they're basically in the driver's seat because they're the ones who are gonna share names and addresses of relevant parties. And if they say, I don't know, I don't know, then it's going to be a pretty nondescript report. And so making sure they know that it's coming from a place of wanting to prioritize their health and safety making it with them, never making it behind their backs. And in my experience, about 75% of patients, and again, I'm in a primary care teen clinic setting, not in an ED setting per se, but 75% of the time, patients will continue to come back and will follow up. And about 25% of the time, don't come back.
0: There was also discussion in the article about the rescuing mentality. So tell me what that is and, and what we're supposed to take away from that when it comes to our common practice.
3: Well, I think it really loops into what Leela was just talking about with mandated reporting even. So many, if not most, of us as clinicians and healthcare workers and servers came into the work because we wanted to serve. We wanted to be useful. And this was one way we could do it. But... I can't speak for other trainings, but certainly in medical school, there is a little bit of a complex that we might develop where we think, ah, if I can find the diagnosis, I can fix everything. I can save them. And if I don't make the diagnosis, I failed and doomed them to the end. Um, And it's healthy to have, you know, some, some pride in what you do. And it's healthy to like have some concern about what you do and make sure that you're doing it well. But there is, I think clinicians have a disproportionately large sense that they can solve all the problems by (laughs) running the right tests and prescribing the right thing. So recognizing that there's a lot of talk about quote-unquote social determinants of health and well-being these days, I did not invent any of the problems that presently exist for why my patients can't access their insulin, right? And it doesn't mean I shouldn't be a part of like trying to, to be the solution, but I'm also not going to fix it in that one ED visit that suddenly they have a living wage, don't have an incarceration history, have access to green space. Like, I'm not going to fix it, right? So sort of disabusing ourselves of this notion that, oh, if I just make the one phone call to, you know, be based on CAPTA, based on the Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act of 2015-16's revision, we're all mandated reporters about a concern for trafficking. It's a question of where, if it's if it's for a minor. It's a question of do I report to CPS or whatever that acronym is in your state or is it law enforcement. But that in and of itself isn't going to fix the problem, right? Nine times out of 10. So not promising that, for example, to my patients, I'm not going to tell them, oh, you told me this thing and you know, I'm, I'm only a doctor, so I have to call CPS, but they're going to fix it. I would never, don't say that, right? Because um, that's not true. Sometimes, honestly, sadly, it can make it worse. So letting people know, like Lily was talking about, that you're making the report and asking them if they'd like to be a part of it. Because frankly, they know who they told. And if someone shows up later, now they know that you narked and healthcare isn't a safe place to come. And now they're not going to come when I actually need, like, sometimes we are literally their only safe place to, if nothing else, get their asthma refills. You know what I mean? Like, let's, let's at least be one, that, that one safe haven that they can come at 3 a.m. when it's raining out and they need a sandwich, right? Mm. So I think it's, I don't use the word victim. I don't use the word suspect. I use words like patient and concern for to try to remind myself and the people that I'm talking to that my job is not, I'm not a DC superhero who they seem to like to do things on their own. I'm an Avenger. I'm a Marvel character. I work on a team. That being said, if you're like, my hospital and the community is like probably many places where I have a social worker during banker business hours. So I am the social worker. And so if I don't know the resources and I don't know what comes next, I can't be a part of that bigger team that's outside of the ED. That's the community. That's who's going to really be a part of serving my patient. So the rescue mentality, getting rid of that just means that, like, recognizing that making a diagnosis and prescribing a pill or connecting someone to a surgeon doesn't fix most of these problems. And that's okay. And that's okay. That's <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, that's tough. tough lesson to learn. Yeah. When it comes
0: to treatment, I mean, there's obviously medical treatment for whatever the medical condition they're presenting with might be, like their asthma exacerbation. But but then beyond that, what kinds of things are you or are you providing to patients in this kind of scenario? Do you have special pamphlets and handouts, or hotlines, numbers, information, local services? Where, yeah, where do we go?
3: That's a great great point because I think people get really hung up on the concern for trafficking and making the diagnosis, which you don't have to make a diagnosis. You can have, all you have to have is a concern. Um, but that, oh, well I did this and now like it's an emergency and guess what? It's not. The emergencies, like nothing about emergencies has changed. Like it's all what you learned in med school and residency, right? So heart attacks, that's the emergency. (laughs) Like if they're not, if they're dead, then you can't help them about their trafficking situation. (laughs) You know, so it's it's sort of putting it in perspective. And just like a child maltreatment report can wait an hour, so too can this. Healthcare Mm -hmm. always comes first. The only thing medically different is if someone is, Or I'm concerned that they're in a trafficking situation and that trafficking situation involves sexual exploitation or sexual assault, bearing in mind that people who are labor-trafficked can also be sexually exploited or sexually assaulted, is that we empirically treat for STIs. And that isn't necessarily something that I think clinicians aren't standard doing for people who are sex workers and turn out to be their patients at baseline. So, you know, we're treating, we're offering treatment for chlamydia, gonorrhea, trichomoniasis, syphilis. These are things that we're not necessarily thinking about uh, empirically doing, but this is particularly important if someone says they're not ready to leave their situation, um, because that means that they're going back out there and we want to make sure that if nothing else we've optimized their health so it's a harm reduction approach and bearing in mind that if you're giving all that treatment number one you want to keep in mind that gonorrhea just keeps getting stronger so you know pay attention to what the latest guidelines are for how we're treating those things but also that people are going to boot like they're going to get nauseous and you've got to make sure they have some food in their tum tum and maybe some ondansetron odt or like something some antiemetic on board before, and then sit with them for 30 minutes or so and make sure it stayed in. And then the conversation about PEP and PrEP, I think, takes a little bit more nuance than most EM clinicians are going to have confidence in. If someone is leaving a situation or experienced a one-off sexual assault, PEP is perfectly appropriate if it if they were exposed in a way that would make that relevant, right? And I think folks are fairly comfortable with that around sexual assault, or that's a whole other podcast. But PrEP, is a bigger conversation, I would say. So if this is someone who either isn't ready to leave this situation, but does have access to consistent healthcare, that may be worth broaching that subject. And honestly, I would say, I would probably connect them to someone like Leela or someone else who's in primary care that can go a little further with that. I probably wouldn't start PrEP in a situation like this in the ED, just because I don't have that rapport. I don't truly, I haven't, I've seen them the once. Maybe I've seen them twice, but I shouldn't be the one That's not where they should be getting their care because they need more testing and more counseling. And I don't give out, over the years I've collected, it's been almost two decades, I've collected many pamphlets and cards. I don't give them out. I almost never give them out, partially because if people aren't ready to leave their situation, it's probably not safe for them to have a card that says trafficking or trafficking response information on it. But I just ask them. They know their situation better than me. If they say that it's safe for them to take that card, then okay, it is. But what you don't want to do is get something found and, and get them into more harm. And sometimes, you know, I, I run out of them now, but my own business cards, I could give someone my own business card and say, hey, this is the ED, so that if nothing else, they can call the emergency department, mm-hmm. right? And then connect them to services. It's super important though to know what your local resources are. In the article, we actually put the national human trafficking hotline if you google there's a website that has a list of federally recognized resources that are specifically anti-trafficking or trafficking response in your local area so you click that you live in Wyoming and then you can see what's there and and yeah it's i think it's it's important to say that there isn't enough for all the kinds of trafficking and all the kinds of people who are tra- affected by trafficking in every state so bearing that in mind in the ED, we MacGyver things all the time, right? So sometimes people get a pain control admission so that we can we have a little more time to help figure things out. And So we we will carry on being creative until the world is kinder to our patients.
1: And also for patients at risk of pregnancy who present to the ED where there is trafficking concern, it's important to offer emergency contraception. In terms of efficacy, IUDs, both copper and Mirena, are great emergency contraceptive. Some EDs have GYNE fellows on call to do that. Others could work on setting it up. If patient does not want an IUD, Ella is the next most effective emergency contraceptive or ulopristal acetate. And then Plan B or levonogestrel is another alternative that can be used for up to five days after unprotected sex. It is fine to prescribe an emergency contraceptive pill for the patient to take home. That's called advanced provision so they can have it on hand if needed. And many EDs are set up to start OCPs, to give a depot shot. Some EDs are even placing contraceptive implants. So, checking in with your patient about their reproductive goals and empowering them to get pregnant if and when they would like to.
0: Good. So, one more question I want to ask when it comes to documentation. So, in the world of electronic health records and ICD 10 codes, there are some codes specific to human trafficking. What's the current thought on, you know, do I use these codes, especially this is a, if this is a minor and their guardian or whoever it is that they're living with has access to their medical records now, they can read the entire chart or get the insurance information with this code on it. Am I supposed to use this code? Is this even remotely helpful in this scenario? And if not, how do I go about documenting something without having everyone in the world available to read it? <laughs>
1: Yeah, and that's a great question. And it is a little bit ironic to think back on the history. Um, several years ago, a local agency called HEAT, Human Exploitation and Trafficking out of the district attorney's office approached us because they wanted to apply for a grant together. And at the time I thought, oh, perfect. You know, we have this fancy new electronic health record system. It'll be easy to do a data dump and find out how many traffic patients are we seeing Only to realize that at the time there were no ICD, at the time it was ICD-9 codes related to human trafficking. So a group called Heal Trafficking and others advocated to create some of these now ICD-10 codes. But as it turns out, they can be quite problematic for many of the reasons that you brought up, both whether, you know, on the after visit summary, it comes out and their trafficker sees it. Other concerns that came up in this day and age of information sharing between institutions, whether through Care Everywhere, there may be times when a patient had been trafficked and is currently doing just fine, and they may or may not want their new medical teams to know about this history. And so in our setting, we have created a smart form that's sort of set up so it does not disseminate and it based on some focus groups with survivors of trafficking, is a more trauma-informed way to track and support these patients. There are ICD-10 codes that are more generic, whether it be psychosocial stressors or if it's an adult patient and they're fine with it, there's one that's kind of like history of trafficking that's sort of blend, but I do think it should be some shared decision-making with a patient if they feel comfortable having a trafficking specific ICD-10 code on their chart and that using a behind the scenes way of documenting and sharing information internally is a best practice. And in our article, we have a whole section under the controversies and cutting edge where we break down some of the capabilities of some of these EHR systems to both collect data facilitate referrals to community-based organizations for patients, as well as flags and ways to notify social work if the patient presents to the emergency department.
0: Fantastic. We are at the end of the conversation. I just want to say thank you to all three of you for taking the time today to talk to us about this exceptionally important topic. The article is just packed full of resources and tables and figures. I can't stress enough what a wonderful resource it is. And so I just want to say thank you from all of us readers and listeners for authoring the article. Uh, Is there anything else that we didn't talk about that you want to mention before we end the recording?
2: One thing that can be really helpful for clinicians is actually using the National Human Trafficking Hotline themselves. So if you don't know what to do, if you don't know what local community-based organizations exist where you practice, you can actually call that number and get real-time, 24-7 advice. And you can even do it without sharing the patient information. And I've done that in the ED when I wasn't quite sure what to do. And it's incredibly helpful. So that's an important resource for clinicians.
0: Well, that's a wrap, everyone. Thank you so much to our three authors for writing such an important article and also for being on the podcast. us all about human trafficking of children and adolescents and don't forget ebmedicine.net for the stroke and trauma books and for the free t-shirt for the love of emergency medicine all this month so many things available to you on the website and also in the mobile app available in both the apple and google play stores until next time everyone be safe